Hey everyone, it's Kevin Morris, your host on another episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And this is episode number 29, another edition of Teaching Thursdays. Today we're talking about Bible interpretation. Is there more than one? Is there more than one Bible interpretation? This is a question that comes up a lot. It's a question that speaks to the issue of truth. How are we to understand truth? If truth is absolute, if there's more than one interpretation, then does that put a damper on things when it comes to us reading the Bible? If there is only one interpretation, then how are we to understand certain passages, especially the more confusing ones? Well, believe it or not, that is really at the heart of the issue of Bible interpretation, especially in our conversation with dispensationalism and covenant theology. Today's episode is going to be an analysis yet again of these two systems, but this time we're going to be looking at the way they understand meaning and language used in the Bible and how that understanding comes to a conclusion of their various interpretations of the Bible. It comes down to this, if truth is absolute, then two opposing views can't both be right. So that has all the difference in the world when it comes to our reading of the Bible and what method of interpretation we're using. I hope you're excited for this episode, and I hope you are ready to learn and ready to interact with some slightly philosophical ideas, but I I like to think of it more as a responsible way to think about the Bible and our interaction with it each and every time we read it. So enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. All your support. It means the world to me. And I can say that because looking at my statistics for the show, I realized that I have listeners in various different countries all throughout the world. And that is a huge encouragement and excitement for me. So thank all of you, whether you're in the United States or another country. I appreciate all your support and listening. This morning, we're going to be talking about meaning and language. So the last couple weeks, we spent some time talking about the whole church-Israel distinction and how that fits into the whole scheme of uh, dispensational theology, how covenant theology differs from that. And we're leading into one of those other tenets of dispensational theology that I've mentioned previous to this, which is um, a literal interpretation of Scripture, um, almost almost a hard line literal interpretation of scripture all the way throughout. Um, So this morning we're going to be talking about meaning and language because it's going to help us lead into that whole discussion of literalism because the idea of literalism has everything to do with prophecy, has everything to do with whether or not there's a continuation of Israel in the Old Testament to Israel or the church in the New Testament, and especially the way that the dispensational theology sees the end times, the whole system of end times playing itself out um, in passages such as Matthew 24, Revelation 20, etc. So this conversation is going to be a little bit of an introduction to that, to that whole thing, which we'll spend a couple of weeks going over all of that. But I wanted to talk about meaning and language because how we come to an understanding of those two topics, meaning and language, has everything to do with 
how we see the Bible played out as a whole in the way we understand it and the way we interpret it. So, once again, I always welcome questions. So if you have any, please feel free to jump in or you can save them to the end. Either way is completely fine with me. Um, but to get us started, I'm going to read Hebrews 4.12, which is a very well-known verse to many of us. And we'll talk about what this has to do with, with meaning and language. Here's what Hebrews 4.12 says. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now that verse is a really good verse to go to First and foremost, as a proof text, if you will, for the fact that the Bible is seen to be the Word of God, not the Word of man or not man's best attempts to convey the Word of God, but the Word of God itself from Him to us. And that very first phrase there, the Word of God being living and active, is unfortunately one of those texts that so-called liberal theology of our day goes to as an example of how the Bible is a bit of a wax nose that can be molded and shifted into whatever shape suits the culture at any given time. Because, by the way, the word is, is living, which means that it has the capacity to kind of shift and change shape and form year in and year out. Well, the problem with that is ironically, that phrase means the exact opposite of God's word being able to change and shift around uh, to suit whatever cultural trends are popular. Because when we think about God's word, God's word has everything to do with authority. And a phrase that I've been using a lot in these last several weeks, objectivity. So, when we think of God's word being objective, that means that it's the standard. It doesn't mean that we come along and define what it means and what it doesn't mean. Because if that's the case, we would be objective. God's word would be subjective. It would take a lesser place. But God's word is objective, which means when we read it, we come up underneath it, not the other way around. And that's why it can say that when God's word is read, according to this verse, it pierces through soul, spirit, joint marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So in a real way, when we come to read the Bible, the Bible actually does a lot more reading us than it does us reading the Bible because it exposes, it demonstrates, it shows, it diagnoses. And all of that is from a place of objectivity and authority. So when we think about that, it's important that we understand also when we say God's word is living and active, that itself is yet another authoritative phrase used to describe the Bible. Because think about it. When we talk about God, what is God? Who is God? He's creator. How did God create? Through the word of his power. God spoke and it was it was not until he spoke, and God brought forth what did not previously exist, causing life to occur. 
So that phrase, God's word being living, is not so much to say that his word has the ability to shift, but it's that life is found in his word. It's a description of God and a description of his word. So yet again, the fact that God's word is living, possessing life in and of himself, is an authoritative, objective term, not a subjective term to say that we can change his word and it's all about us. And the reason that matters is because in Bible studies, not just you know group studies around a round table, but even something like this, it can get really difficult, can it? Because obviously as we're studying through this, there is more than one method of interpretation. And because... In this example, covenant theology and dispensational theology come to very different conclusions that oppose each other. They can't both be right unless we live in a world of contradictions. Now, of course, when we think about the age that we live in, it's very common nowadays to say, you do what's right for you. I'll do what's right for me. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. You think that this is wrong, so it's wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. Now, that's a very postmodern way of describing reality because it's to say that there is actually no standard. There's actually no objective truth. Truth is really all about what I say it is. Truth is in the eyes of the beholder, and that's the world we live in, is it not? Well, that's also the world we live in many times when it comes to studying the Bible. You see it your way. I see it my way. We can both be right. Let's just be friends. We can still be friends, be right. If I say grass is green and you say it's red, well, we can't be talking about the same kind of grass, maybe. Maybe after you burn it and set it on fire, it turns red. But we can't be talking about the same thing because those are two different conclusions to come to. In interpretive methods of the Bible, a huge conversation that comes up in all of your up-and-coming pastors going through Bible college and seminary is the idea of meaning. And when we think about meaning, what does this text mean? What does this verse mean? What is the right understanding of this? The question that circulates over and over again is this. Meaning or meanings? Is there one meaning or are there multiple meanings? That's a huge question because the way that we come to an understanding of that is going to influence everything we read in the Bible for every day of our lives. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll cover just a little bit of it here and we'll come back to this verse later, come back to this passage later on this morning. But for the sake of understanding the whole context of it, I'm going to read those first 11 verses in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, 
With most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now this comes into that whole idea of meaning or meanings because when we think about interpretation of the Bible and application of the Bible. There's a phrase that I've heard a lot growing up, um, being in a very conservative context uh, where the, the trends of liberal theology was not exposed to me at all. Um, it was very common f- to hear things uh, such as one interpretation, many applications. And While I don't want to argue against that at all, I want to at least employ it here in this case. Because as we see Paul calling our attention back to the narrative in the book of Exodus, Paul says twice in this passage that what was recorded served a dual purpose in a lot of ways. Uh, He says at first in verse 6 that these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he says it again in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So you can see how that narrative, that occurrence in the book of Exodus, all that whole narrative of the wilderness story of Israel has kind of a dual purpose, right? It first and foremost served to reveal God to the Israelites and was recorded as what we call the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and was taught and instructed to all the Israelites throughout um, the time of the Old Testament. But now you get to the New Testament, Paul's speaking to a Gentile church, if you will, and he says that those things happening were written and recorded for our sake and our benefit. Now, obviously, At the time of the Old Testament, they probably weren't anticipating that a church in Corinth one day is going to receive everything that was written for us and is actually for them. That's probably not what the Old Testament saints had in mind. But Paul is demonstrating to us here a dual purpose or a multiplicity of purpose in God's Word. Now, that's not to say meaning. We'll get to that in a minute. But at least at this point, we could say a dual purpose or dual ways of God's Word applying to us. So, multiple applications at this point. Okay? So, that's really getting us to the idea of method. So, this whole conversation of dispensational theology and covenant theology has to do with what theological system what biblical doctrine summary we see the Bible teaching. But what we're looking at now is more of an interpretation method. We're thinking about grammar. We're thinking about use of the phrases, the paragraphs, the books of the Bible, those kind of things. 
And that will lead us to what will, I think, be helpful in this whole idea by looking at Jesus' own words in the Gospel of Luke. Being that this wasn't too long ago when Pastor Jesse preached through the Gospel of Luke, I do remember this sermon very well in the passage about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And there's a key verse there in Luke chapter 24 that we'll look at, and that is verse 25, really 25 through 27. And this passage will be our launch pad to understand how meaning and language and theological, how all those categories and all those things come together to give us an idea of how we should approach the Bible and respect the different ways that God communicates to us from Genesis all the way to Revelation. If somebody wouldn't mind, you can read Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Okay. That, especially in verse 27, that's really where we can look and spend the bulk of our time for this whole conversation. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in our two categories, we got dispensational theology and covenant theology. In those two theological systems, there are two different methods that are used as a way to understand the biblical text. In dispensational theology, you have what is called the grammatical historical method of interpretation. In covenant theology, covenant theology doesn't reject that, but I might say as a supplement to that, covenant theology uses the redemptive historical method of interpretation. Now you'll see in both of those, there's a common word, historical. And what does that mean? It means that whether you're in dispensational theology or covenant theology, one thing is utterly certain, Bible to be true. You don't believe it to be fable or fiction or just a treatment of literature to be studied and analyzed and cut apart. Now, the reason that matters is because going back to what we initially said, the difference between having a liberal view of the Bible or a conservative view of the Bible really has to do with whether or not God's word is authoritative. Now, if you're part of kind of a liberal mindset of the Bible and of theology, you reject things such as the miracles of Christ, the substitutionary death on the cross, the physical resurrection from the dead, Jonah being swallowed by a large fish and living the Red Sea being parted, all of those things are turned into fables in the liberal understanding of the Bible and used really as moral lessons for us. There's a very common thing that has happened in liberal theology and really has overtaken many, many denominations, including the largest Presbyterian denomination in our country. 
There's no longer a certainty of these kind of miracles and truth claims. It's really all about learning moral lessons to live a better life and seeing Jesus merely as an example, not as a savior. And that matters because in both of what we are communicating in covenant theology and in dispensational theology, we have to recognize first and foremost that both systems see the Bible as historically true, as reliable, as what God's word says is true. What he says is what he says, not what we make it to say. So that is to say we both see the scriptures as historical, true, reliable, not fables. But I will say that at that point, we kind of differ the further you go. If you will, you don't have to uh, lose your spot there in Luke. But almost every Bible has something, if you turn to the very front of it. Maybe your Bible makes a distinction, maybe it doesn't. But almost every Bible, that I know of anyways, has this. It's a table of contents. And in your table of contents, something that we have to recognize is happening. When you look at it, it's very, I mean, very familiar with what you're seeing here. You got the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way through Malachi. You got the New Testament, Matthew, all the way through Revelation. Now, what's important for us to know about this is that this is not a chronological listing of the books. Now, I would guess that almost all of us know that. But the reason that matters is because the Bible is presented to us in the way that it's made up as a library. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have categorization not from logical what happened first, what happened last, but genre. You can see it here. You can see Genesis through Deuteronomy has to do with the law. Joshua all the way through Esther is the historical writings. Job through Song of Solomon are the poetic wisdom literature. And then Isaiah through Malachi, the prophets. Now the reason that matters is because when we read the Bible, sometimes it's really hard for us especially if you just read Genesis all the way through Malachi in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's hard to really get our timelines figured out. Because when you read a book like Isaiah, what's happening in Isaiah is happening all the way back in 1 Kings. And when you see that, sometimes you, you get confused of what's happening when and what, I mean, what's really happening historically during his time of writing and how does this relate and I'm getting confused because I don't know what's happening and all that kind of stuff. Even Haggai, the third to last book in the Old Testament, was a prophet alive and prophesying during the writings in Ezra and Nehemiah. I mean, there's, there's a correlation that we have to understand even the same thing can be said in the New Testament. You, know, you have the four Gospels and Acts. And then you have Romans all the way through Revelation. But historically, one of the earliest writings that's recognized in the New Testament is Galatians or James. There's a thought that one of those chronologically happened first before anything else. But yet we get to James more than halfway through the New Testament. And that matters because 
if we can understand that the Bible is categorized by genre for us, then we can understand more so what we're reading and where it takes place in the grand scheme of things. So in the dispensational method of interpretation, I mentioned they have that grammatical historical method. So kind of self-explanatory, but they put a lot of emphasis on grammar and history. Grammatical historical method. And the reason that matters is because in the dispensational view, when you come to a passage in the Old Testament, for example, how do you understand what it means? You understand what it means by studying and analyzing the grammar and studying and analyzing where it fits in to history, i.e., what did this mean for those people at that time? It only relates to us by way of inference and application. Now, that's really important because when you think about, for example, what's happening in Israel in the Old Testament, those promises, those covenants, you know, we've been talking about the Abrahamic covenant, everything like that. What is seen in the dispensational view is that everything taking place and displayed in the Old Testament relates to the people in the Old Testament. There's only ever a secondary application or a kind of second tier relation to us. In other words, we're mainly historians going back in time to figure out what's taking place there and if it has relevancy to us, and if so, how much or how little. Now, my problem with that is that because that is the grounds that they stand on, it is very common in dispensationalism to say that their way of interpreting the Bible is accurate because it's literal. What's said to them applies to them. What happened then is relatable to then. We, in covenant theology, are often charged by dispensationalists that our method of interpretation is allegory or spiritualization. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress before? That's an allegory. It's a good book. I really like it a lot. But what's happening in there has this, if I could say it this way, this, this veiled meaning, right? You have the life of a Christian trying to make it to the celestial city, and he goes through everything, and there's scripture references, but it's this narrative that's not actually, you know, a historical account. It's this narrative that has this hidden or deeper meaning behind it. And that's really what dispensationalists say that we do, especially when it comes to the Old Testament. We're New Testament believers on the outside looking in, and we're trying to read our reality into all of that in the Old Testament, i.e., we're allegorizing it or spiritualizing it. We're robbing mentions of Israel and historical accounts of their true and original meaning, and we're imposing our own life and our reality as God's people in His church into all that. That's normally the argument that's made by dispensationalists. Now, the problem with that is manifold. But first and foremost, the problem with that 
is looking at the way that Christ understood the Old Testament. What he said to his disciples on that road to Emmaus. He pointed back to the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets. Now that was a very common way of just describing the Old Testament in its fullness. And Jesus looked through that. I don't know exactly how it took place. It had to have been awesome, however it was. He looked at all that and explained everything in the Old Testament as it related to him and as it was fulfilled in him. Now that's exactly what we've been doing as it relates to the covenants, as it relates to our conversation last week, that there's only the people of God universally represented in that promise made to Adam and all of his descendants through faith in Jesus Christ. There's one reality being brought from beginning to end. And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10 that there's a relationship between what's happening in the Old and the New Testament. He even, he even uses the word our fathers. Now that's interesting because after all, the Corinthian church was a Gentile church. Now if Paul wanted to make that distinction of that was for them and here we are in the New Testament times, you wouldn't see that language. Normally when you find stuff like that, the argument is typically from dispensationalists. Yeah, but he was speaking to a, to a Jewish church. There's mainly Jews there. Well, that's not the case in Corinth at all. So when we think about both of these systems, that idea of meaning and language really has a lot of um, significance in how we understand the Old and New Testament. If you will, turn to Revelation chapter 13. Now at this point, I've mentioned two ways of understanding the Bible. And I know I've introduced a lot of terms, so it would probably help to explain the other one that I've mentioned but not defined. So remember our two theological systems, dispensationalism and covenant theology. And underneath both of those is that method of interpretation. In dispensationalism, it's that grammatical historical method. In covenant theology, although I recognize and covenant theology recognizes that grammatical historical is a, is a good method. We certainly don't want to rob anything in the Old Testament of having anything to do with people in the Old Testament. I mean, it clearly does. But the problem is that method doesn't go far enough. Not only because of what Jesus Christ said on the road to Emmaus to his disciples, that there's this relation of everything in the Old Testament pointing to him, but also in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, I'm sorry, I didn't mention the chapter already. Revelation 13, verse 7. Now this is in the midst of a lot of things happening here, and we will get to Revelation because, honestly, this is one of the most important books to understand in this whole conversation. But as I'm trying to limit everything to the idea of meaning and language this morning, I'll mention something to you that really matters for understanding. In verse 7 and then in verse 8, here's what it says. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb 
who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, we've mentioned a few things in these last several weeks. First, we've mentioned that that promise given of the seed who would come to crush the head of the serpent is without question Jesus Christ. And that promise was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and fulfilled in everything typified in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross in his life and in his resurrection and ascension. In addition to that, we also read in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 last week that this redemptive purpose was the eternal purpose of God. That is to say, Jesus' coming was not a plan B or C or plan A part 2 or plan A paragraph 5 or whatever. It was God's eternal plan. This is what he intended to do, period. In this section in Revelation 13, 8, Bible translations will sometimes shift the words around in the sentence. But regardless of what the word order is in the English language, recognize that this idea of the lamb being slain was an idea before the foundation of the world. It wasn't, here's God's plan, everything messes up, and then he pulls this greater plan out of its pocket and puts it into place. Obviously, God is outside of time, and we don't even have time to go over what all that means in this class. But to at least say that that concept, we have to understand that God's purposes are eternal. God is not restricted to a timeline like we are. So God's plan, how he wants to reveal himself, how he wants to be glorified, etc., etc., all of those things in the mind of God relate to this one reality, the redemption of God's people. That's what you see celebrated in the book of Revelation. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That, that's those songs that we're singing. All of it relate to Jesus Christ and what he did. All of those realities are centralized on the reality of redemption. And that is why, in covenant theology, our method of interpretation doesn't discount history, doesn't discount what was said to those in the Old Testament, but our method is redemptive historical. Because history, here's the old cliche, history is his story. And what is God's story? The story of redemption. What was shown to mankind from the very beginning, the reality of redemption. One who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And what is communicated to us all throughout the Bible. Redemptive history. These types, these shadows, these anticipations of the one who would come. And after Christ comes, we, in retrospect, are looking back at that moment And it is what is defining everything else that still is to come. That is to say, in short, redemption is that focal point of history. The most significant moment of history, not necessarily in terms of chronological time frame, but the centrality and the focal point of history is Jesus Christ on the cross, redeeming the people of God and fulfilling those promises.
I want to show you that in 2 Corinthians, the very first chapter. And once you're there, if you will, somebody will please read verses 17 through 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Has a, yeah, that's good. That has a lot of impact on this whole conversation. It really has a lot of impact on our entire existence as Christians. It's very common when you say the, say the blessing before you eat, say the blessing before you go to bed, in all your blessings, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Why is that? Because all of the promises of God have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Why do we pray in that way? Because Jesus is our substitute, not only taking upon, taking our wrath upon himself that we deserve, but also standing in the gap and giving to us all of the blessings, all of the promises that are rightfully his. This is why in the Old Testament, Jesus is fulfilling all of those realities, regardless of what narrative it is. That's why Jesus can say to the disciples, here's everything related to me. Here's how I fulfill all of these things. Whether it be the promise made to Adam, Jesus is the greater Adam. Whether it be Noah and the ark, Noah was the one who was supposed to come and finally give rest to the people. That was that word, Noah, rest. Well, Jesus comes and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus holds us up in that ark, if you will, where we escape the wrath of God coming to all those who reject Christ and are not found in Christ. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. Jesus is our great high priest, the fulfillment of the entire Mosaic system in the law. Jesus is our king fulfilled in the promise given to David. In all of these things, Jesus is the fulfillment. And so, when we read and understand the Old Testament, we first understand the way it relates to us is redemptive historical, not let's read the grammar and look for a second tier application that may or may not apply to us. But we are entirely related. We have a stake in everything in the Old Testament because we belong to Christ and are found in him. It is in our adoption, in our being brought into the family of God and belonging to Christ that we have absolute primary relation to everything in the Old Testament, even if we're not ethnic Jews. But we don't have a second-tier relationship to it. We have a primary relationship to it because we have a primary relation to Jesus Christ. Now, that is, in very short, the way that the redemptive historical method understands the Bible. Obviously, the entire reality of Jesus doing all of his work on the cross and what eternity would be like was not necessarily revealed immediately in the book of Genesis. But God's revelation is progressive. We get more and more fullness. 
It's like standing into a dimly lit room and the light just, you have one of those lights that can, the dim switch, you know, it just slowly gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until we don't need a sun anymore, according to Revelation, because Christ will be there. But that's how the history of redemption plays out through Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's a progressive revelation of Christ. It's a progressive revelation of redemption. But it starts with that seed, that promise, that little, that little seed in the soil in Genesis 3.15, that promise. And it grows and grows into full bloom by the end of history. Let's go back for just a second to 1 Corinthians 10. I mentioned we would jump back there. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we should understand that what Paul is arguing for here is not whether or not there are multiple meanings in the text, but whether or not we belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, there's primary meaning, one meaning, one reality seen for those in the Old Testament and those in the New Testament. This is a very interesting thing. Notice what Paul says here. We looked at the way that he mentioned in verse 6 and 11 that this is of example and instruction on our behalf. But now notice what he says for those in the Old Testament. First and foremost, like I mentioned, he calls them fathers. That is to say, those who we belong to are our ancestors, those that we are part of the same family. And again, that's important because those in the past being ethnic Jews and this church in Corinth being comprised of Gentiles, that really makes a, makes a huge difference on Paul explaining to us how Jews and Gentiles relate. Well, how do they relate? Here's what he says. Verse 4. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Look again in verse 9. We must not put the Lord, or we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. You can see this interrelationship here in the way that those in the Old Testament functioned and the way we in the New Testament function. Jesus Christ is the reality in, in both of them. Their relationship to God was just as much through Christ as ours is. A lot of times in the Old Testament you see what's called theophanies, this, this appearing of this, some, some kind of physical appearing of God to people. And you see in the New Testament a kind of a, a way that it plays out first and foremost. You see this connection between Jesus going to the mountain of transfiguration. And he shows his glory to the disciples there. And they see it, Peter, James, and John. They see him in his glory. And that's an exact parallel to what Moses saw upon the mountain when God showed him his glory. We would call this... Not only theophanies, instances of God appearing, but Christophanies, instances of Christ appearing. Because although Jesus didn't enter as humble man into the world until the time of the New Testament, 
Jesus, it's not as if he didn't exist before then, being the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And you do see manifestations of him all throughout the Old Testament, just as here. What you see in the book of Exodus, interestingly enough, is not only that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire leading the way, but it even says that the angel of the Lord led the way for the Israelites. Now that kind of has a couple things that we can gather from that. First and foremost, can you imagine the way that they grumbled and complained while being in the presence of Christ himself leading the way? That's, that's kind of a, a scary thing, uh, but you know we kind of do the same thing, don't we? Christ dwells within us through the Holy Spirit, and we act as if he's not around. He's you know, up there somewhere. But that's not the case. We have this interrelationship, not only those in the Old Testament, but those in the New Testament, and that relationship is the reality of Christ. So there's one reality, and there's one people. And that's why Paul can say to those in the New Testament, they have the same stake in what is written as those in the Old Testament, because we both belong to Christ. Now, one more thing I want to show you in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4, we won't look at a whole lot for the sake of time. Galatians 4, excuse me. Paul looks at the narrative genre of the book of Genesis and applies it to those he writes to in the New Testament in this epistle. Here's what he says in Galatians 4, verse 21 through 26. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Historical account, this really happened. There really wasn't Abraham. There really were two sons. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, while the son of the free woman was born through promise, Isaac. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. I'll go ahead and read the next two verses just for the sake of clarity. For it is written, and this is a passage from Isaiah. Now he's moved and implemented the prophetic genre. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers... Like Isaac, our children of promise. Now, I'll tell you what, let me read the next verse, just I'll stop at this one. But just as 
At that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. Now notice what Paul says. What's the difference between Ishmael and Isaac? They were both just as ethnically related to Abraham as the other. But what does he say? One of them was born according to the flesh, and one of them was born according to the Spirit. Both ethnic, ethnically related to Abraham, but one born according to the flesh, and one born according to the Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul gets at, and we will look at Romans 9 through 11 later on. But that's exactly what Paul says as it relates to Israel. There is an Israel according to the flesh and an Israel according to promise. This whole promise, this whole idea of Abraham's life and what God promised to him was not guaranteed for everybody who was ethnically related in that family line just like you see here. But what is promised is for all those who are born according to promise. The idea is promise, not ethnicity. And that's why we, as non-ethnic Jews, can share in everything, can be adopted into the family, because we, are, we have been born according to the Spirit. We have been brought into that promise. And what is that promise in relation to us? It finds its yes and amen, not just one promise, but all the promises of God, according to Paul, find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That is how we share in that. Because Jesus was the promised one to come, and he also was ethnically in the line. You see that in the book of Luke and of Matthew, that Jesus relates that lineage goes all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to Adam. Now the reason this matters is because in dispensational theology again there's a default of literal interpretation. So anytime you see in the Old Testament mentions of Israel, they say that is ethnic Israel no more or no less. When we come to the text, we don't discount that it is ethnic Israel. Clearly, it was ethnic Israel. But we do not spiritualize that to mean that used to be Israel. Now it means the church. But we read that and say we have a claim in that because of Christ. We are acknowledged as belonging to that because of Christ. Now that is the absolute most important distinction to understand because once we get to issues of land promise and the way that the end times is going to happen and even when you read in a book like Romans that this partial hardening of Israel according to the flesh is going to happen then that just informs this whole end time system and prophecy, et cetera, et cetera. And the way that we want to be careful when we come to all of that 
is to not abandon everything we've just said of how we belong to Christ and belong to all those promises. Because what happens in dispensational theology is when you get to all of the end times and prophecy instances, all of that belonging to Christ and we're all one in Christ kind of goes out, to the, out the door entirely. And then it goes back to whether or not you're an ethnic Jew and the church being different from Israel. And that's really where all of this comes down to is do we relate to what is said in the Old Testament just by way of secondary application or by way of adoption through Christ? That is where the rubber meets the road, if you want to say it that way. But this was kind of an um, introduction to all of that. I wanted to cover all of this with, I know this was kind of you know, a whole lot of stuff thrown in there. But if we want to understand the whole issue of literal interpretation, meaning, language, all that kind of stuff, we got to understand how a dispensationalist and a non-dispensationalist approaches the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament. We've got just a couple minutes if anybody has any questions. Yes? It depends on who you ask. Um, the common distinction is that, I don't want to overly simplify it, but just for the sake of, for the sake of a simple answer, in, dis, in dispensational theology, God the Father is the Old Testament. God the Son is the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit kind of on the half and half. Yeah, and, and what I just said was kind of, just to, to give an answer, the, the classical view. The classical view being something entirely different than what's happening in the New. And obviously I don't think any dispensationalist would disagree with the animals pointing to Christ. I mean, I, I think all of them would agree with that. But as, in terms of whether Christ himself was active in the Old Testament and involved with what was happening. That's more, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that goes to why it's called dispensationalism, which is another way of saying stewardship. How did God steward his people? Well, it was mainly the Father in the Old Testament, Christ for a little bit in the New, then mainly the Holy Spirit, and then Christ again at the end. And those are those dispensations, those stewardships of God over his people. Yeah. Well, that, and that'll matter when we get to words like temple and things like that when we get to the book of Revelation. Yeah. Anybody else before we close out? All right. Let me pray. Well, thank you so much for listening to that episode. I hope you benefited from that. And I hope you have been able to start thinking through the issue of truth because really when it comes to Bible interpretation methods, it can almost seem like we're trying to pick our favorite sport or our favorite team or it's like a coke versus pepsi dichotomy but really it comes down to the issue of truth if we care about truth we should care about what the bible has to say and if truth is objective if it is not relative and if the interpretation of the bible can only have one true and reliable interpretation lest we fall into the category of contradiction, then we really ought to take seriously Bible interpretation. And that's what this series is all about as we're discussing, discussing dispensational theology and covenant theology. So grab your Bible, make use of those scripture references that you've heard on this show today, 
and please reach out to me. I would love to be in contact with you. You can go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash ask. You can submit a question of an upcoming episode you'd like to hear a particular topic covered. And you can also see the full show outline by going to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 29. Well, that wraps things up for today. Thank you so much again for your listening support. Have a great rest of your day.